Hey, welcome to Rushcast. I'm Jay Mantis. Thanks a lot for being here and thanks for listening and all those other things you do. We finally got an answer to this question that we all ask each other as fans. This question of uh, what song would they play on their last tour for the last song? The last song Russia ever performs, like if it were a true farewell tour, which R40 is not, according to them. It's not an official farewell. What would be the last song that they play? Uh, so Getty's on Dan, the Dan Patrick show, and he, he says it would be Working Man, which I guess we shouldn't be surprised at, considering R40 has the potential of being the last tour, so that last song ended up being Working Man. But it was cool to kind of have an official answer for that, right? Um we we've we've discussed it so much and now we know at least what one third of the band thinks and i i have a feeling that's probably a collective they they're collectively agreed that you know yeah this is what we would end it with and what we will end our 40 with maybe not so much neil <laughs> he wasn't on the original recording but i still think they all enjoy playing that even neil so last last week i i brought up this moment in the camera eye what what are we hearing Vocally, somebody's saying something around the nine-minute mark in the camera eye. And a bunch of you responded, and the more I read, that you all responded with the same thing. But the clip you hear at the beginning here uh, was sent to me by Bill Middletown Meyer. He says that the... I don't know where he got this track from on YouTube, but it's um, just the isolated part that you heard at the beginning of this episode. So he says, Hello, Morning Gov as in governor, in that London accent. And that part of me feels like I knew that at one point, but I had forgotten. And whoever posed the question to me a couple weeks ago didn't know either. So now we all know. I appreciate everybody <laughs> responding because I can. I feel like I can ask you guys anything. There was a long period of time where I considered myself like the biggest Rush fan, and now I talk to all of you and realize that I'm. there are definitely areas where I am not as knowledgeable so i can ask you you guys things like this and you enlighten me in certain ways thanks to david sprick who gave us a review a five-star review on itunes we really appreciate that reviews go a long way for podcasts so thank you david and i want to say hi to josh keating from england we have a, a, a few listeners, a few British listeners now, and that's really cool that my voice is traveling halfway across the world. I think that's uh, a fun thing to consider when I do these shows. And Josh sent me a really nice email that I want to talk about. Josh says, Hi, Rushcast from England. I'm a massive Rush fan and I've just started listening to your show last week and I'm really enjoying it so far. I'm 24 years old, so I'm relatively new to rush although i've been listening to specifically moving pictures and roll the bones for about as long as i can remember but became obsessed back in early 2012 after being completely blown away by hearing 2112 for the first time the voice you mentioned that is speaking in the camera i am pretty sure is two guys speaking in a watered down london accent saying hello which is responded with morning gov gov being an abbreviation of governor 
He says it makes sense that uh, it makes sense in the context of the song, which is about observing the street life of two cities, London and New York. I also have a few things which might be cool to discuss at some point on the show, which I think about from time to time. I'm putting them in points so I don't ramble too much. I hear you there, Josh. Uh, I'm in the same boat often. Uh, let's see. I want to do these in a different order here. He says, why can we not get a remix of Presto that is less compressed? And that's a great question and very relevant for me. So you heard from my father recently on an older episode. And my dad asked himself the same question. He thinks he's going to be able to do his own remix of Presto. And he's got his own, he explained it to me how he's going to re-EQ it and all these things to make it sound much better. He said, I think the material is really good, but we all kind of, we look at it, we look down on it because of the recording quality. He's, he insists he'll be able to do this. So he sent me, he's going to do it to the whole album. He said, I think it's not going to work. We'll see. He just sent me a clip of what it's going to sound like or like his kind of first shot at doing this so it's show don't tell i'm gonna play it for you in a second and we're gonna see or i'm you know i might not play the whole thing i'll play clips of it to see if it sounds any different other things josh mentioned in his email was uh taishan here we go he says i can't understand why taishan is so loathed the lyrics come from neil's experience of traveling around china in the late 80s without a camera so he would take notes like an old style traveler writer and there are some cool glacial guitar runs which stand out glacial is a really good word for that josh he says, I have loads more I could talk about, but I'll wait for another time and spread it out. And he talks about other things in this email, too. I just, I want to wait. We'll get to that. So, uh, here's the thing with Taishan and, and the rest of that album, the more obscure tunes. They're, I like the word glacial. They, they kind of tell a story in a very different way. I say this often. When I talk to people who say, oh, Rush was great up until Signals or whatever, you know, whatever line, this huge brick wall that they put down in the middle of the discography and say they were junk after whatever album, you have to approach it as different bands. If you listened to Rush, let's say you owned A Fair Little Kings. It's the only album you had and you loved it. You loved it so much. And then decades later, you purchased Roll the Bones, and you thought, what the heck is this? I can't imagine what that would be like. I mean, it didn't happen to me like that, but I can understand why someone would go, this is junk. 
you're expecting a night a late 70s prog metal band to to be playing the, the things that that label is has associated with it and what you what do you get you get heresy and you bet your life and roll the bones with the cheesy rap section i i would be disappointed too but if that person takes a farewell to kings and says well this is many years later let me see what roll the bones is like let me see how this band has changed you might have a different perspective. You have to view Rush's material because it's such a wide amount of time as different bands. And there were they were four different bands, four or five different bands. Snakes and Arrows is very different from Roll the Bones. Roll the Bones is different from Grace Under Pressure. And you guys know that. But we have to keep that in mind. Uh, somebody emailed me about High Water. That was a song that kind of took me a little bit to really appreciate. And this is the track right after Tyshawn. So Nick L emailed me a little uh, a few weeks ago. And he emails me a lot now. We talk frequently. I'm glad to have him as a guest on the show, or a, a fan of the show. He'll be a guest soon. But here's my here was my response to him when he said he he didn't really like High Water yet. Here's the thing with High Water, or at least what it really did for me. I have to imagine myself in a time and place described in the song. When the tune starts, I imagine I'm in a completely darkened planetarium. Getty Getty is the tour guide, and he begins. When the waters rose from the darkness, in the wake of the endless flood, it flowed into our memory, it flowed into our blood. Pretty good introduction, right? It's like Neil's first line of a thesis paper. Still, there is no light in the planetarium. There is nothing to be seen. The sounds of Getty Lee's low-register voice and the small scent of rotisserie chicken for some reason. When something broke the surface, just to see the starry dome, here the visual begins to awaken. In fantasy-like fashion, like something from an episode of Cosmos, your meditative trance has taken you there, to that endless flood. Just after the starry dome line, the music really kicks in. Alex shows up for real this time, after taking a nap while the synthesizers do their work. He slams on a couple of power chords, symbolizing the overwhelming heaviness of what you're seeing. These chords sound as you look up and see the most beautiful collection of stars you've ever imagined. It's the point your tour guide is trying to make. We still feel that relation. The second verse is different. This time your tour guide is taking you deeper into this new land. Alex's guitar paints this image. Absent on the verse, the first verse where you are hesitantly following the tour guide, but now strongly present. His guitar part is saying, let's go explore. You see long lost creatures during this verse. You see plants and mountains and marble fountains that you've never witnessed. Something swam through the jungle. The tour guide encourages you to hear the wordless voices of all these amazing sights. Feel what they are telling you. The guitar solo is an instrumental overview of what you are experiencing, adding additional color to the environment. The creatures left the ocean, 
headed for land and much greater things. We still feel that elation. The water takes us home. It's where we began. The ocean is life. Water takes me home. Take me home. That was my my response to Nick about high water, and I got really emotional when I wrote it, and I thought, maybe I'll just read this on the show and, and explain to people. That is one of the most imagery-filled songs for me in the entire catalog. It does a great job of taking you there, and I'm not talking... I mean, the, the lyrics are great, and something swam through the jungle is what a great way to describe these creatures in their environment. But musically, something else is happening in high water. I love the way it's another great example of what Alex does to complement synthesizers. There's so much time where he isn't playing and it's great. I'm studying jazz uh, in a master's program in New York City right now. And one of the biggest things you can do when you're improvising is to just not play anything. Silence is so valuable in any music. Okay? Especially metal where people think, you know, some of the newer metal that I listen to where it's always got it, you always have to be playing something. Good metal bands can decide, you know what? This part needs silence. In the middle of this riff, there will be a chunk of silence. That is the cool part of the riff. It's the same here. Alex, I like to imagine Alex recording or writing this tune and him trying out different things during that beginning part. Going, yeah, it's too much. Trying something smaller and going, yeah, it's not the right feel. And then finally, when he real, I, want- I wish I could have seen him when he went, no, I don't need anything. Maybe he listened to it back. You know, he says, let me hear all the other parts you know, so I can figure out what I'm going to play. And he said, no, that, that's perfect right there. And then when he finally comes back in with those huge power chords, they were so much heavier and so much more important now because he hadn't been there at all. And the guitar solo, like I said, it's just an overview of what you just saw. It's like a second party coming in and saying, let's recap. That's a really powerful song. I know a lot of you agree with me, and you like that song just as much. Um, But for anyone who's, and this isn't to discount Nick or his preferences, but anyone who doesn't dig it quite yet, and you will, and Nick will, and anyone who doesn't like any Rush song will eventually like it, is what I've told people. I just recently said, somebody told me the only good songs on Paper Trails were Oh boy, the essentially the songs they performed live. One Little Victory, Earthshine, Secret Touch, and Ghost Rider were the only good songs on Vapor Trails. And I'm like, interesting, because those were the only songs I liked that I really had any interest in when I first heard the album. And then realized, yeah, those are the strongest out of the gate. But the others are amazing in a different way. You know, you can't... The vibe that I'm feeling when I want to listen to One Little Victory is very different than the vibe I'm in when I'm really enjoying Sweet Miracle. You have to have different vibes, because the songs have different vibes. I'm getting real serious on this episode. 
Last week I asked you what song, what two songs from the vault that have never been played live do you most want to hear? It's essentially the Rush Petition website, um, just for our listeners. I voted, and it was, it was pretty easy. I mean, it wasn't easy. But anyone who submitted realized it wasn't easy to just pick two, but it was clear to me the two that I needed to hear most. That was Emotion Detector and uh, Blanking. It was a motion detector, and it was freeze from Vapor Trails. Very interesting results from everybody that participated here. Okay, let's uh, let's. I'll I'll mention the ones that got a few votes. So with one vote, Red Tide, out of the cradle, which were both by Mick Whelan, and and definitely the most unique entries of everything I got. Take a Friend got one vote. Open Secrets got one. Uh, with a few more, Peaceable Kingdom, Alien Shore, Fountain of Lamneth. A few more after that. Everyday Glory. And the winner was Emotion Detector. <laughs> So while Freeze didn't get any votes, I nailed the other one. Everybody agrees with me. And that's not uh, to say there's any difference between the others and a motion detector, but it's surprising. I mean, they play a lot of power windows lately, except that one. It was also interesting. Some people sent me a third as like an honorable mention. A motion detector was one of those. Um, Fountain got another honorable mention and there were three honorable mentions for cut to the chase so and that was one that i i considered but decided no not uh i wasn't going to include it emotion detector is great here's i'm going to tell you why alien shore will never be performed live and hasn't been performed live i could map it all out but i decided it wouldn't be an interesting thing to listen to the, the, listen to the guitar part. Turn on Alien Shore and pretend you're a guitar player. And you have to make all the sounds you hear coming, all the guitar sounds you hear. You can't do it. You can't do it live. And you say, oh, well, Jay, they, they sample guitar parts all the time. Yeah, they do, but not to this extent. Not enough to play this live. And I agree. You know, when, when I first heard Vapor Trails, yeah, Animate's cool, but Alien Shore is the gem initially is what i thought right out of the gate alien shore was just the most rocking the most interesting song there was on the album but when you really listen you know the guitar solo starts while the other guitar part was just getting done and the guitar solo is still playing just before it ends meanwhile the other guitar part has kicked in already you hear it right out of the gate i keep saying out of the gate this episode i like it it's a good it's a good analogy Right out of the gate in Alien Shore, you hear several guitar parts that are layered that could not be performed live and would be a pain in the butt to trigger all of those and to sample them. I'm telling you, you could take my word for it, but if you really sit down and isolate the guitar in your ear, you will you will understand what I'm talking about. Really think about it. Because it is... A, it is one of the big kind of it sticks out like a sore, sore thumb when you see the list of tracks they've never performed in Alien Shore, really? Like that and the rest of Vapor Trails. 
while most of while some of Vapor Trails I agree wouldn't be great live, uh, or or I could see why they'd skip them. Some of them I don't understand. Yeah, so Mick Whelan says out of the cradle and red tide. Well, out of the cradle is definitely it's a vault tune of the vault tunes, especially with the entries I entries I got. He was the only one to say red tide, and I completely overlooked red tide. That's another one I thought, how has that never been played live? It's so uh it rocks. And when I I think it takes a while to get going that tune, which is the reason it took me a while to hear the guitar solo. You know, I'd listen to a few seconds and go, okay, what's the next track sound like when I first got the album? But and I know I know that's the wrong way to consume albums and I wish I hadn't I wish I hadn't done it that way. But I remember later going, Wow, that is a killer guitar solo that I've been skipping. Um and that was one of the other the one of the only songs I've sat down, you know, I've been a piano player in the past and I sat down at my dad's piano to learn the, the opening piano part to that tune. And it, it's hard. <laughs> it, it's fast and it requires a few hands. But I liked that entry and it kind of made me remember I had forgotten about that tune. Here's Chad talking about his vault tunes. Hey, Jay, this is Chad. So the two songs that I would love to see Rush break out of the vault that they have yet to do so... I'm going to have to go with Alien Shore off Counterparts. And because you already listed Freeze, I'm going to say Peaceable Kingdom off Vapor Trails. And here's Jason Vaughn talking about his vault tunes. Hey, Jay, great job on your show last week. It was awesome to hear from Jacob Moon. I remember the first time I saw that Subdivisions video, and I was uh, absolutely blown away by that, uh, that cover. It was absolutely perfect, and the song acoustically works fantastic. Um, also hear from your father. That was really funny. I especially liked the part when he said after my vocal part, uh, he said, there is no such thing as a bad Rush song, and I know exactly what he's talking about. Kudos for him for saying it. I just wanted to start a little bit of a conversation there. Anyway, getting on to this week's digital discussion, uh, this was ex- ex- an extremely awesome question, and it took me forever to narrow this down to just two because there's pretty much five or seven that I want to hear. But if I had to hear two... I'm going to agree with you on one, a motion detector, hands down, that song would be off the charts crazy if it was played live. And the other one, I know you're not going to agree, but I just don't care. I want to hear the entire Fountain of Lameth, every part, every minute, every second. I don't need to hear Tom Sawyer. I don't need to hear Limelight. If you cut out Spirit of Radio, if you have to cut Working Man, whatever you have to do, I would love to hear that song live. And there are a couple other close runner-ups, but those would be the two. And uh, that's all I got. Great show. Take care. That was a fun digital discussion. I enjoy, I mean, it's like this fantasy land we live in when we talk about that kind of thing. Because we might not ever get to hear these tracks. But at least we still have the studio versions. They're not going anywhere. So, I had more than one. I think I had three people suggest the same digital discussion this week via email. Um, Josh was one of those people. That was another thing he talked about in his email. Uh, he mentioned how he gets really connected to the artwork, the album artwork, just the cover we're talking about. And he says Grace Under Pressure is one of his fa- is his favorite. And several other other people mentioned 
how much they connected this as well. So they said, let's rank them. I thought that's a great idea. So that's this week's digital discussion. I ranked them all, but I don't want you to rank them all. When I ranked them, I did it in four tiers, and it just hurt too much. It was too painful. I didn't really understand what justified each ranking. So let's just do the top ten. Give me in... And you can order them. Your top ten favorite Rush covers. Or your, your, your album covers. You know what I mean. I will give you... My tiers and my... I guess they're not ranked top ten. So you'll do it differently than I did. In the bottom tier, I have Caress of Steel, Farewell to Kings, Permanent Waves, and Hemispheres. In the next tier up, I have Clockwork Angels... Fly by Night, Vapor Trails, Presto, Snakes and Arrows. Snakes and Arrows had so much color in it. Different colors than all the others that had been used by the band, which made it interesting. And interesting how Presto, with the black and white, kind of reflects the audio, which is sort of black and white in a way. At least in our brains. Second tier, I have Power Windows, Moving Pictures, Fly by Night, Counterparts and signals. Fly by night gets a bad rap. You know, people. I've I've showed the. I've I've been with people who see the owl and just start laughing. They think it's funny, and or some people think it's ugly or whatever. And it catches your eye, and I think that's what makes a good album cover. And in my first tier, twenty one twelve, the first album, Rush, Roll the Bones, Grace Under Pressure, obviously, and Test for Echo. Those last two are very... Artistically, they're great. But I think the original album does a great job. It it catches your eye. It's huge. It's bold. It's in your face. It tells you who it is immediately. I don't know how I would rank those, but that's what I want you to do. Rank them 1 through 10. Just give me the top 10. I don't need to know the rest. I never know how to score them when (laughs) I get extras. You have to wonder if Getty's mom, when she sees Neil before a tour, pinches his cheeks and says, I remember you as a boy. You had that really funny-looking mustache. Why do you look like Tom Hanks now? Today's New World guest is an old friend of mine from when I was going to music school at a community college in upstate New York. Please welcome Paul Bonolo. Hello, how are we today? Yo, how you doing? I'm fantastic, thank you for asking. Paul, so yourself? Paul played the tuba back in school and I played string bass and we had two refrigerator-sized lockers that were adjacent to each other in the locker room. And, and we played next to each other in the wind ensemble um, and it took a while for us to realize how much we had in common in terms of similar interests. And Rush was one of those interests from the get-go, right? Oh, absolutely. You could you could say it was like love at 10th sight. Right, at 10th sight, like it took a few weeks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, what, what was like the first... What was like, I don't even know the answer to this as someone who is your friend and a former or a, a fellow Rush fan. What was your introduction to the band? Um, actually, another friend, uh, 
someone who we also went to college with, Nick Paldeek. Yeah. Um, I he was my first one of my first bandmates in like our actual own rock band, and he was obsessed at the time, you know, uh, as you can get in your teen years. Uh huh. And he just kind of turned me on. I remember the first Rush song I listened to, knowing it was Rush, was Limelight. Actually. <clears throat> cool. Yeah. I think was d- wasn't uh wasn't Nick's our friend Nick wasn't his introduction like Presto or something weird. Yeah, he got into it, you know, when he was a kid in, like, like 90s-ish era. Right. So, his dad was a big fan, too. I mean, you see that a lot with, like, like family lineage of Rush fandom. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and now, just to set the record straight, you did did or did not play tuba in that rock band? I did not. <laughs> I, I have played tuba in a rock band before, but not that long. I was going to say, have you considered it? Yeah, uh, you know, funny story, I, I filled in playing bass for a band and uh they asked me to bring my tuba along for a gig in saratoga up here but uh that was an interesting time i like how like i always get annoyed when a band or a group of musicians will tell me like oh just like bring your bass which is a very exhausting and a very sweaty task to like pack up my upright bass and load it into the car and then take it out of the car and bring it into these small doorways and into these rooms. That's exhausting. And then they're like, oh, just bring your electric. Well, now I have an amp and electronics <laughs> to deal with. So I like that you as an electric bassist were just asked to, oh, yeah, like bring your tuba. Yeah. <laughs> no big deal. See, it's, it's a great uh, conversation topic for me, so I love bringing it just for the attention. The, the tuba thing? <laughs> yeah. Now, I, I'm just remembering now when the Time Machine tour started and Getty had that Time Machine-esque thing behind him uh, where his amps would be. I remember you kind of being all excited. Yeah. You, you were excited because there was a tuba. Because it was tuba time. That was one of the settings on his Time Machine. <laughs> tuba time. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he was uh, catering to you and probably very few other people <laughs> who were bassists I, and tuba players. Well, I guess there's a lot of... Double bassists, especially back in the day, that would double on tuba, but not yeah. so much tuba playing teenagers. Yeah, I, I think you know their target demographic is nerds anyway, so they figured tuba. <laughs> <laughs> right, like they might as well have just had like a Star Wars, um, like uh, uh, wow, people are tripping and dying in the studio here. <laughs> Rest in peace, Kevin. No, that's cool. Well, like so. Let me think. What what's an album that you've listened to most recently, or that you've enjoyed the most? Uh, most recently, I have been. Uh, let me think. Well, actually, we just started uh, selling Rush Records where I work, and um, records like vinyl. I, yeah, like vinyl records. So I've been starting to collect a little bit. Um, wow, I just lost it. Wow, I'm surprised that I'm surprised they're selling vinyl, and I'm surprised they've got Rush there. Yeah, no, um, I'm I'm totally drawing a blank. The one with um, Jigga's Ladder, Entrenou. Permanent Waves. Yeah, Permanent Waves. Nice, yeah. nice. <laughs> what was the last show you saw? Uh, I actually I missed R40, uh-huh. very unfortunately. But um, well, it well, was guess- it was hard to get to R40. They you know they didn't. They didn't hit as many intricate, intricately located stops. Yeah, I was really disappointed that they didn't uh, hit the upstate area, at least where I'm around, you know. Yeah. But, 
but I guess that would make Time Machine the last one or Clockwork Angels. Clockwork. Right. And those are yeah. two that are easy to get mixed up just because of the stage production. Yeah, it was very, very similar stylistically. Did, so he changed from those two tours. He changed his bass rig thing. He there was like this big giant brain, and there was like a popcorn machine. But did the tuba still exist on stage? I don't think so. Am I, I can't, I'm trying. I'm sure one of our listeners will know, but weren't they like, wasn't stuff going into the tuba and then coming out as sausage? <laughs> yeah, there was some sort of, well, because like, yeah, their opening video was the whole, the diner scene, and they had the whole like sausage time kind of poker thing going on. Isn't Alex Lifeson in a fat suit your favorite thing? It's a, it's adorable and hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> I, I I hope that happens more in the future. Yeah. Uh, uh, let me think. So we were I, just talking earlier on the episode about our favorite album artwork because a bunch of people sent in as a as a suggestion. Like let's let's hear what people what people think about the album artwork. Is there one for you that really stands out that you like the best? You know, it's gonna sound corny, but I I think moving pictures for sure. Uh, just for the little like double entendre there, you know, uh-huh. moving chairs and the whole movie theme kind of thing. Um, and just you know, I think you know the moving guys are kind of an iconic figure in the Rush lore, right? But um, I, I just I always was drawn to that because it kind of in my head made me imagine you know we the, something we talked about like in college actually a lot was looking at musical pieces as works of art and how they're in their individual frames. And so that kind of linked me to kind of see it as, um, sorry, I'm having technical difficulties here. That's the story of my life, dude. <laughs> um, but just, it, it let me kind of imagine each song as its own moving picture, if you will. So, so you, you limelight was your intro. Did you then have the rest of the album that to consume at the same time? Yeah, that was the first one I went out and bought. You know, as soon as I, I heard Limelight, I pretty much probably within like a week went to the store and picked up moving pictures. Mm-hmm. And uh, at that time, you know, my my fanness was in its infancy. So I was just like, whatever, I want to have this track on it. That's what I want to get. You yeah, know? that's yeah, I, I feel you. I mean, it was overwhelming as a growing Rush fan to to acquire all the albums because there were so many. It felt like it would never end sometimes, like you know. 90% of my audience is uh, middle-aged, <laughs> I guess you could say. They're a lot older than I am. And yeah. they were... I'm jealous of the fact that they were able to experience all these albums being released because that's such a fun time for a Rush fan. But for me and you, it was like, oh, uh, the band is called what? Who are they? How, mu- how much music have they written? And now yeah. we get to go to the, sto- to the store and I've got 20 albums to buy. And if you're like me, it happened one, maybe two at a time. Yeah, no, exactly. It's, and I and remember it's looking. Almost, I remember looking for Driven, and Test for Echo was the last album I got. Just in terms of, and I was buying the albums like you know, I'd go into Fye or like a bookstore, Barnes and Noble, go over to the CDs, go to Rush, and see what was there. And of course, the the, the standards are always there and, and stocked really well. But yeah. once in a while, you see a rarity, and, and Test for Record was the last one I had to get when I finally found it. I'm like, here's Driven, the song that I've heard on Russian Rio, and I've been looking for this forever. <laughs> yeah, I think for me, which uh, 
What's what's body electric on? That's power windows. Um, uh, Grace under pressure. Grace under pressure. The um, yeah, that was one for me that I I love the song Body Electric because I had like their gold album, uh-huh. you know, and um, to look for the actual album that was on just took me forever. Well, like, and I I, I, I remember know. you talking about the Body Electric. Was it just that you liked it, or was there something about it that you always used to kind of bring up? I, I think like. The simplicity of the intro was really, it was something that you don't hear from Rush a lot, you know? Yeah. Um, it's just a very basic, dun, 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 just very kind of like chugging, driving. And from, you didn't, you know, from from what I had heard of Rush, it was like, I just went kind of head first into the, you know, time changing, three minute riffage kind of songs. And then to hear something that, like, like that, that was very basic but still powerful, like, just really drew me in. This is uh, something I've been really conscious of this week, is the use of silence. So when you study yeah. jazz and you learn to improvise, they always teach you that silence is your best friend. Sometimes not playing is the most powerful thing that in your music. And it's very, very true. In uh, The band I talk about a lot on this show, Periphery, is the, is the group that I... It's prog metal, what prog rock has evolved into... Yeah, and they've got a tune on their latest album that they're they're known for the same thing: playing a lot of notes, playing fast, playing uh, really complex stuff. They have a song that starts off with a really simple riff that has a lot of silence, a lot of time where they're not playing, and it it really pulls differently. And I think that's what's happening in that drum part in the beginning of Body Electric. Yeah. There's there's all that space where nothing's happening. Yeah, and it, it just, it's like uh, like dangling a Twinkie over your head almost. You just, you want something to keep happening, so you're that much more invested yeah. in it, you know? <laughs> dangling a Twinkie, nice. <laughs> uh, Paul was on an episode, an old episode of Knickerbocker. It was, a, it was like a two-hour episode all about <laughs> Star Wars. And Kevin and I are Star Wars fans, and Kevin and Paul more so than me. And they, they, we did impressions, and we did all kinds of things, and it was ended up being really funny and really enjoyable. It really enjoyable. We recently cut it up so that it's a more consumable episode. It's shorter, and we cut out the stuff that didn't really hit as well. Um, but you can you can find Paul and myself uh, along with Kevin, the producer of Rushcast, uh, at Knickerbocker's page and on iTunes. Uh, have you seen, Paul, have you seen the, now I'm having technical difficulties. <laughs> have you seen the video on YouTube of C-3PO and R2-D2 set to the body electric? I have. That was on my uh, quest to find the music video when <laughs> I first heard the song. That was the first one that came up, actually. Isn't that really, it, it's kind of freaky how well it works. Yeah. there's a You know, you see a lot of that stuff with Rush music because they're so in that like kind of epic story fashion of lyrics sure that you can kind of make a lot of connections i think i can't remember for sure i think it's like 2112 is allegedly supposed to line up with the first 20 minutes of uh willy wonk and the tropa factory say wait a minute say that again the you know 2112 the the song is supposed to allegedly line up with um willy wonk and the tropa factory like oh the man wonk. yeah so this is getting this is going down the the pink floyd ro- uh road Right yeah. with um the wall and uh the Wizard of Oz, right? Yep. 
Yeah, very similar. So, so the beginning, I've never heard this, Paul. This is brand new to me. Maybe one of my listeners, maybe some of them have know what you're talking about. The very yeah, beginning. Mean, it's it, Well, the way, because I've seen like a video of it. I didn't watch the entire thing through. I think I watched like the first 10 minutes. Um, but they start when all the kids are at the factory. Mm-hmm. And it's just kind of like the dead silence while they're waiting for him to show up where you have like that kind of spacey intro. Yep. And then I think like, you know, uh, Gene Wilder's like fake fall tumble kind of thing is where the chords come in, like the down at. If I can find something like that, I'll I'll share it all over the place because that's something that needs to be seen. In in any video that is consumable, it's got to be the fourth time I've used this word in this interview, but um, any video with Rush music that is consumable is very welcome because... I don't have any issue with the statement or claiming that Rush has some of the worst music videos of all time. <laughs> they just weren't very good at music videos. Um, time Stand Still might be the best audio in existence, in my opinion, and hands down the worst video in existence. Uh, that's definitely a top three. <laughs> have you seen the electric video? I assume you have. Yeah, I've seen it in the... You know, I haven't seen any of them recently once in a while i go back to time stand still to remind myself um that the band does have flaws flaws uh, but i haven't seen the body electric recently i know there's uh, it's dark and there's weird lighting and they zoom in on alex's eye or something right there's a lot of weird stuff and and kind of there's like a story going on simultaneously with like shots of the band playing but every now and then what they'll do is throw like bubbles on the screen of the band playing oh while, yeah like, yeah around <laughs> <laughs> and they're like they're like fisheye lens like style shots <laughs> so you see like you know you get those weird zoom ins on like the getty's nose or something like that <laughs> floating by this guy while now, he's running there's over a the guy that spoofed the time stand still video um and he sings over it but he and he changes the lyrics to emphasize what's happening or to kind of narrate what's happening in the video and he points out some really funny flaws like at one point there's two kneels behind a drum kit floating like there's two (laughs) of them on the screen at once um amy mann is pointing the camera at nothing for a few (laughs) seconds uh there's some really really funny stuff if you haven't seen that one as well yeah now people have pointed out that we we all like to put kind of poke fun at these videos but there are a few that while they're weird and and maybe uncomfortable they are serious and and maybe pretty good one of those is lock and key i didn't know lock and key had a music video until recently i didn't know that until just now and uh, some in this person argued that it was their only one of their only good videos and i watched it and i thought how have i not seen this before and it was it was pretty good it, it was enjoyable there wasn't a whole lot going on, but it was it at least kept my attention. The other one that somebody recently argued for was Mystic Rhythms. Have you seen that one, Paul? No. That one might take the the idea that Rush has weird things in their videos to the highest level. Um, <laughs> it's an eccentric video. But, you know, well, they do what they want. And the thing about Lock and Key was... Lock and Key among bass geeks is known as the only song ever recorded where Getty used a five-string bass. Now, that has always baffled me as a bass player because, number one, when I listen to that song, I don't hear a five-string bass. 
while there might be one or two notes where the notes go below the low E of a four string, he doesn't live down there and he doesn't really spend a lot of time on that additional string. I, I've been meaning to kind of, anything lower than low E, I've always just assumed was a, a bass pedal, not a bass guitar. Um, so here we are in this music video and Getty's playing a four string wall. <laughs> it's like, if that was the only, if you played a five string, why aren't you playing a five string in the video? And there's no visual proof of this five string ever existing. If there is, please enlighten me. Oh man. But at some point I'm going to have to like sit down with my bass and try to learn it and find, see if there's a spot where I go, Oh, that's where I can, I don't have that note unless I have a five string. Yeah. I mean like, and I, you know, I work at a guitar store, so one of my arguing points for a five-string is that it's great for positioning reasons. And the problem is, though, I don't see, like, Getty having that issue. Huh. What, so what do you mean, positioning? I mean, like, you know, as far as keeping your hand in one spot, so that way you have the lower access of the fifth string, just to make it easier to not move your hand back and forth on the neck. Oh, I see. Yeah, you have more strings to cross to get your notes. Exactly. Gotcha. But yeah, that just seems that seems odd. Uh, had, the, go ahead. Uh, just a thought that jumped through my mind. We didn't talk about the Big Money music video. And and you like? I mean, as far as bad music videos go, I think that one's probably another top three. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> remember when the Monopoly board on top of the building? It's you a really small Monopoly board, isn't it? Yeah, it's like, well, because there's sometimes it's like just a digital shot, and then sometimes it's like a practical effect. It's really weird. Oh, yeah, they go in and out of a really bad uh, CGI, right? Yeah. <laughs> like, back when CGI was, we can make these blocks, and we can make them any color. <laughs> Isn't that yeah. cool, you guys? <laughs> yeah, they have, uh, I can't remember, it's like blue or green Monopoly card, kind of like land on the street right. like it's like lying down and it touches yeah. down the street <laughs> you see like we're talking about the background and the atmosphere of these videos but what we're failing to recognize is how animated alex is in these videos for <laughs> for as excited as he gets on stage in a live show it's not nearly as compressed as it is in a video like he's going he's going nuts he looks like i mean he would never be able to play, I don't think, when he's <laughs> dancing like that. But especially in Big Money he, and the Grace Under Pressure videos, the Power Window videos, he is really a rock star in that setting. Oh, yeah. That's what I enjoy about that the Big Money video is seeing Alex. Also, I loved the... Cosmetically, I loved his guitars from back then. Yeah. In those videos, you get... Uh, it might be Distant Early Warning, something from Grace Under Pressure where he has... That red Stratocaster with the red headstock and a mirror pick guard. Like, that that stuff was so flashy, and he had the cool hair, and uh, I that's what I enjoy about the videos. I despise the Steinberger that Getty was playing. <laughs> but um, they do what they want, you know? Yeah. H- have you ever noticed, like, let's talk about the drum kit. The drum kits he's used. Do you have a favorite? It's like it's hard to remember because the, what they all looked like, be, especially since we didn't see all these shows, all these tours. Yeah. But I've noticed that his kits don't often reflect the color scheme of the rest of the tour. Do you know what I mean? 
Yeah. On Snakes um, and Arrows, we have this like light purple cover uh, on the album. And the whole aesthetic of that tour was very dark. It was a dark kind of vibe. Um, and then Snakes and Arrows Live had the road sign, which was bright yellow. But he has this kit that is bright red. It's my favorite kit. I think it's the most gorgeous one. It has nothing to do with the rest of the color scheme, though, in my opinion. Uh, we can argue Time Machine and Clockwork, it absolutely did. But um, I guess where I'm going with this was uh, on Hold Your Fire, his, his kit was pink. It was like a light shade of pink, and I thought it was kind of unique. Oh. You haven't seen guess- that pink kit? No, I haven't. Well, then get off my show, Paul. <laughs> <laughs> I hereby resign as a Rush fan. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I now what I do when, when I email people to come on the show I, I say uh, P.S. No hold your fire haters allowed on Rushcast <laughs> I'm sick of it don't come well, on my show and tell me hold your fire is awful no uh, I, we, have, go ahead even if you don't like it you have to appreciate the journey like of the band as a whole and that's the way I always see it you know there's obviously there's tracks that you're gonna love or hate but like you have to appreciate the band from A to B I just see like growth. You yeah, know? that's a really, really nice point. And you almost have to expect that from a band who has more than five albums. Like Paul yeah. and I shared a, a love for Lincoln Park's new album when we were in uh, in community college. Right, this yep. is 2011. They came out with an album called A Thousand Sons. Um, I think Paul, if I remember correctly, you weren't a huge fan of their older stuff, which everyone else was. Um, but the band went in a very new direction, and and we really enjoyed it. And since then, they've been changed. They've still been changing. Whether good or bad, that's up to you. But you have to appreciate the fact that they're changing. Yeah, because you can't write the same album ten times in a row and expect people to enjoy <laughs> it over and over. You know. However, Breaking Benjamin continues to do that, and for some reason, is very successful. That's another band that it's it's like a guilty pleasure of mine. I I just like the music that they write. And they have changed the least through five albums. I think they just released their fifth. It's amazing. Are you laughing at me? I'm not. I'm giggling. <clears throat> at what? The fact that I listened to Breaking Benjamin? I, I was just thinking, I don't, uh, I don't know how appropriate this is, but we classify, me and Demi uh, classify that as Bono Rock. You and your girlfriend. Yeah. Classify, <laughs> that's a genre for you. Boner Rock, yep. Boner Rock. <laughs> is Linkin Park grouped in with that as well? Uh, I would say, you know, early day Linkin Park, yeah. That's Boner Rock. Interesting. I will keep that in mind. <laughs> it's, it's any kind of rock music that you can imagine a guy with, uh, you know, like spiky hair and camo shorts rocking out to. I see. And that is a very good description of early Linkin Park. <laughs> <laughs> That's what the guys looked like. So what what is the closest uh, that Rush ever got to Boner Rock? Ooh. Spiky hair and camo shorts. Uh, does camo kimonos count? Yeah, sure. Why not? Well, the spiky um, hair thing is a, is a <laughs> shot. Well, wait, no, no, hold on a minute. Let's go to the early 90s when Neil had, like, very, very short hair. I yeah, I was gonna say maybe counterparts because I kind of consider that almost like a breach in the metal on a couple of their tracks. A breach in the what? Metal. Uh, in in what way? I mean, um, 
like stick it out. Just those kind of like really heavy gain riffs, very like simple rock, as opposed to like uh, you know they had just come out of doing a lot of stuff in line with like <laughs> the police, where it was very like synth heavy, and then they kind of turned into this hard rock deal. Right. So I back to say, the roots. Yeah, I wouldn't say it's a metal album. I would just say it kind of pokes into that direction. Do you like counterparts? I love counterparts. Um, that one took me a long time to really appreciate. <clears throat> like, yeah, I, some of them are really good for, at face value. Like, you hear "Stick It Out," and if you're a fan of metal or heavy rock, you you go, "Yeah, this is this is what I'm into." Anime yeah. has great hooks. And Cut to the Chase is a great solo, and Alien Shore is really heavy. And But then there's those other tracks that really tie it all together, I think. And those are the tracks I've come to love more as I've aged with the album, and I've heard yeah, the album I, a billion times. Actually, I've kind of been hooked on Nobody's Hero a lot the last couple of weeks. Yeah, is that not like really well-written and it's really well-recorded as well? It's great, and there's a lot of, like, you know, like we were saying earlier, they, they do a lot of kind of a storytelling with their lyrics about like kind of like fantasy themes but that's a very like real raw emotional song which those are kind of like gems in the rush lyric world yeah i've I've, i said a while ago how like it's interesting how sometimes i think the band doesn't groove like they're not a groove band they're they're and i i am talking about the drums but i i'm talking about the band collectively the music um it's not music that you can really move to in a way that you would when you're listening to Bruno Mars, like Bruno Mars grooves. Yeah. Does that make sense? However, what they do even to counter that even further, they tell a story. And my, I think the greatest example of this is red Barchetta. Like it, it is very simply a story. You could, you could write the lyrics down and it could be a book like a children's yeah. book or any yeah. kind of book. So I'm with you, Paul. I've actually, uh, I don't know if you guys have talked about this before, but I was thinking about this and I was actually kind of wanting to ask you and maybe have another, a couple other people chime in on it later on. But um, here's my question for you. If you could go back and listen to any Rush album for the first time ever, what would it be? What, the first time ever, like... Like if you could unhear it and then listen to it for the first time again. <laughs> That's a great question. <laughs> yeah. If you could unhear it. Just because now you in my shoes like i heard presto when i didn't really fully understand what the band was but now i know everything there is to know about the band virtually and i can go back and experience that again well what what would that be for you um again i'll I'll take the easy way out and i'll say moving pictures um (laughs) the easy way out (laughs) here's why though because that you know it's practically a greatest hits album and the tracks are so overplayed to most of us now mm-hmm. that you, I feel like I kind of like lost the love for a lot of them, you know? Yeah. So to go back and hear it as if I had never heard any of these tracks before and hear them as brand new tracks, it would, I think it would do a lot for my perspective on them, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I wonder, like, I think I would probably do 2112 or hemispheres. Okay. Uh, it would be cool for me to to hear hemispheres and go, wow, like this is um, intense and amazing. <laughs> yeah, I think if I could. What about if you could go back in time and and be around for when an album was released? For me, that's that's twenty one twelve. Yeah, I'm a hundred percent on that one. 
to, especially because that was such like a teetering time for them, you know. Yeah, it's it's a, like uh, I, I I said this too, you know. I bought the album decades after it was released, but to go back then, they had two, they had three albums out, and that's such a small sliver of their career to get twenty one twelve. I, right now, I compare 2112 to other albums, even albums that came after, and that's completely unfair. Because in 1976 or whatever it was, there was only Rush, Fly By Night, and, and Caress of Steel. That was all there was to compare it to. So when yeah. 2112 came out, it was the greatest thing ever. <laughs> you know, like like I forget that as a young person. That's what yeah. I would do. That and, and to hear... You know, and this is something that gets talked about a lot, but how side A is you have just 2012, this epic, like, rock opera. Yeah. Then right on the other side, you have just all these, like, singles that they just whipped out, you know, and it's like, to hear a band totally kind of take a 180 stylistically, you're expecting the next half of the album to be pretty similar. Right. And then it's totally not, like, (laughs) and, and they shove it in your face how multifaceted they are and, you know. And amazing. They say deal with it or or kneel with it, as some people say. Exactly. Rush memes are like uh, a different thing. Like they're powerful. <laughs> they're the they're some of the best memes on the internet. My favorite is a picture of Neil from like the nineties or maybe the early two thousands. He's sitting cross legged in the middle of the woods and he's pointing at the camera. And someone wrote underneath it. Only Neil Peart can prevent forest fires. I thought that was very wise. <laughs> True. Paul, thanks for coming on my show, man. Hey, thanks for having me, Jay. This is a lot of fun, and, and anytime you want to come talk or, or contribute to the conversation, please don't hesitate. You got it, man. Hey, hopefully I'll find my way closer to you at some point. I can pop in live. Finding my way. He ends it with a rush pun. There it goes. Paul, cool. you rock, man. Hey, same here, Jay. Thanks. Brought to you no, by. I say it. Brought to you by Knickerbocker. <laughs>